Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Once again, as we continue our way through Hebrews, we come to chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, God's holy word. Hebrews 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's for the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Let's pray. So how do you gain an audience with God? What is necessary to have your prayers heard? What does it take to be at peace with our Lord? Well, our first guess to answer these questions is just to talk. God is all-knowing, he is everywhere, so merely speak your mind and God will hear your voice. And yet, in reality, it's not so simple as this. In fact, getting an appointment with God is not unlike trying to meet some famous or powerful person, like the president, the CEO, or a movie star. For you can't simply walk into the White House for a face-to-face. Instead, you need help and permission For such bigwigs have secretaries, personal agents, and bodyguards. In order to get a meeting, you must contact the gatekeeper. They will vet you, and if you are approved, approved, then the appointment is put upon the calendar. And our prayer life has many similarities to this. For as sinful humans, we cannot just barge in on the Lord of glory. The almighty creator and holy king of the cosmos does not suffer such rude presumption. Rather, access to God requires that we go through an agent, a mediator, which is precisely what Hebrew teaches us this morning. So as you know, it's been all the fad these past few years to talk about privilege. Though ironically, many of the things labeled privileges don't actually qualify or aren't even real advantages. Nevertheless, Hebrews just recorded a very real and awe-inspiring privilege that has been given to us. Namely, we can approach with boldness the holy throne of God to receive merciful help. Timely grace is our privilege from God, and it comes to us through Jesus, the Son of God, as our high priest. Indeed, it's the priestly office and labors of Christ that's put in lights for our faith so that we don't fall away. 
But why stress this priesthood? Why do we even need a priest? Priest sounds so last century to our modern ears. What do priests even do? Are they even necessary? Well, the author now digs in to give us an extended documentary on priesthood. In fact, this episode on priests extends from here all the way through chapter 10 in this sermonic letter. But as is fitting, one should start a topic with definitions so that we know what we're talking about. And verse 1 lays out the essential elements of a priest. What makes a priest a priest? Well, first, the priest must be chosen from humans. The priest is not selected from dogs or lambs, nor from angels or spirits, but the priest must be a human, an image bearer formed from clay and the breath of God. Second, the priests act for other humans. He serves, represents, and mediates for other people. Within his jurisdiction is not found trees and rocks, lizards or kittens, but the priest labors for his own species alone, men and women, adults and children. Third, the priest is appointed by God. God selects and installs the priest. That is, the people do not get a vote, and the priest doesn't get to volunteer. Rather, the Lord reserves the right to pick and choose the priest. Fourth, the general business or task of the priest is literally the things of God. That is, he is about the holy work of God, the sacred labors of the Lord. On the to-do list of the priest isn't economics or politics, It isn't agriculture or cultural developments. No, his forte lies within the sacred realm. His authority does not cover the common realm, but it encompasses all that which is holy unto the Lord. The king sits upon the throne. The prophet stands upon the watchtower, but the priest patrols the tabernacle and temple. Yet amid these more general holy labors, there's a single task that the author highlights for us. The priest offers gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now, gifts and sacrifices is a a comprehensive way to include all sorts of different offerings. But for sin specifies the need for atonement. A sacrifice for sin is one that pays the debt of sin purifies the stain of transgression, and appeases the just wrath of God. To offer a lamb or goat for sin means that the priest is in the business of blood and smoke. He slices the throat, he dashes and dabs the blood, and then he turns the flesh into sweet smoke to merit the favor of God for sinners. The priest deals in the gore of killing an animal life to save a human one. And this priestly purpose reveals the essential problem that the priesthood was created to solve. Namely, that us sinners have no right or access to the holy God. The Lord is not some lofty human king, but he is the absolutely righteous monarch of all things. So glorious is his holiness that it slays all sinners who even step within a hundred miles of Yahweh's majesty. 
You see, the sign of God's holy realm reads, Sinners shall not pass upon pain of death. There is no phone line for a sinner's prayer to reach God. No telescope for sinners to peer through. We often like to think of God as a big teddy bear with an open-door policy who's on call 24-7. But the truth is far more terrifying, lethal, and complex. For in our sin, we are banned from God and in and his holy realm. We have no access as fallen sinners. The only way for us to gain an audience with the God of glory is by a priest. Not a single syllable of our prayers can reach God unless a priest carries it for us. Thus our atonement, our life, present and future, all depend upon a priest. Without a priest, we have no communion with God, we have no prayer life, and no hope for glory for the glory of eternity. There is no salvation without a priest. Thus, as one who sheds blood for sin, the priest must be a human to be gentle with us. Though the nuance of this gentleness more so means to control one's anger. The priest must be patient with his passions. Now, it may not be the nicest thing to say, but we all know it's true. Namely, that the ignorant and the wayward are frustrating. The dumb and deceived are annoying. When someone should know better, but they still do what is wrong, it makes you want to pull your hair out, to shout and scream, to break something. When Moses came down from Sinai and saw the Israelites grooving around the golden calf, what did he do? He broke the covenant tablets. And we can't fault him for it. If we are honest, we sinners are an infuriating bunch. We are hard to be patient with. If an angel was our priest, he would just squish us like a pesky mosquito. To control one's anger towards us, then, requires one who's like us. Thus, the priest can be gentle with us as he is closed in the same annoying weaknesses that we have. The priest shares in our infirmities. He's familiar with our problems because he has the same one. When we fall off the wagon, the priest can be patiently gentle with us, for he too has fallen off. Feeling hangry, waking up on the wrong side of the bed, a stiff back and sore knees, these are the plight, uh, or this is the plight of the priest along with us. The weak humanity of the priest then curbs his anger with us. This common weakness, though, results in an obligation. That is, the the shared stain of sin requires atonement both for the priest and the people. The priest must shed blood for his own sin and then slit a throat for the congregation. With a weak and patient priest, atonement is a two-goat process. A pair of blemish-free beasts must be slaughtered to purge away our impurity and that of the priest. And this dual duty of a priest is one that Hebrews will will soon drill down deeply on. Thus, we should tuck away this truth in our purses for later. And yet the final factor of the priesthood that the author defines for us in the moment comes in verse 4. 
Note he says, no man grabs hold of the honor of priesthood for himself, but the high office comes only by God's call. This amplifies the point previously made in verse 1, and it establishes two facts about the priesthood. One, the Lord alone creates the offices of the covenant. From heaven, he writes into law the legal offices. And he prohibits any other offices other than the ones he ordains. Two, God selects the men to fulfill those offices. The Lord suffers no democracy when it comes to the priesthood. And he excludes the voluntary free will of the man. This is no pick me for the priest. Instead, the Lord's will is paramount. He voluntells the man as an offer that he cannot refuse. This is evident with Aaron. As you'll remember, the people didn't vote for Aaron. Aaron didn't apply for the job opening because he wanted to. Rather, the Lord told Moses, bring Aaron forth to be my priest. He imposed the office on Aaron, and Aaron couldn't say no, quit, or play hooky. Moreover, as we read in Numbers, the hereditary office had to stay within Aaron's family. If someone tried to join Aaron to be a priest, if they wanted to replace Aaron as priest, they had to be executed. Aaron had to guard his priesthood so that no illegitimate person who encroached, um, they would have to die if they tried. Today, if a kid says, I want to be president when I grow up. Parents often encourage and cheer the kid on. But in ancient Israel, if a non-Aaronic kiddo said, I want to be priest, then the dad pulled out the rod to discipline that desire out of the kid in order to save his life. And from these truths about the priesthood, we find principles that still govern the New Testament church polity for us. For as in the Old Testament, God creates the New Testament church offices, and we are not free to come up with our own offices. The Lord appointed apostles, pastors, elders, and deacons for his church. These are the offices that we must stick with, and our imagination cannot create others. Of course, as the church, we have the constant pull to improve on what God has given us. We dream up other offices that have no authorization from the Lord. The people get sick, so let's ordain a doctor. The church has to look pretty, so let's lay hands on interior decorator. From business directors to coffee cart operators, the church multiplies offices like the heart manufactures idols. But this should not be. Our church government must remain within the Lord's commanded offices as he defines them. Additionally, the men who fill these offices are still only selected by the Lord. Exalting yourself to the office is yet prohibited in the New Testament. Now, the selection process does vary in the New Testament, some from the Old Testament. 
Under the law, men were appointed by the genetic connection to Aaron and then by personal worthiness. In the church, though, genealogy counts for nothing. It doesn't make a lick of difference who your dad is if you want to be a pastor or a deacon. And yet the will of God is still primary over the individual will of the person, which is confirmed by the call of the church and the hands of the presbytery. You may ache to be a pastor, but if the church does not call you, then you are not a minister. If the presbytery doesn't lay hands upon a man, then he's no elder or deacon. Yes, God's call comes first internally, within the heart of the man, but then it's sealed by the external call of living and breathing saints. If a man makes himself to be a pastor with no calling from the church, then he's no different than Korah in numbers, whom the earth swallowed up. And if this seems a bit heavy, a hair too strict, then we should note that it was good enough for Christ. For Jesus didn't exalt himself to be a priest. He didn't merely listen to his own advice. Personal ambition for honor was not what drove him. Jesus didn't lust for the limelight. Self-promotion was not the fuel that propelled him. Rather, as a humble servant, Jesus bent the knee to the will of his Father. As Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the Father. Again, he said, I do not glorify myself, but it is my Father who glorifies me. Jesus sat patiently on the bench until the Father called upon him. And this is proven by two Old Testament passages. First, he saw a sight, Psalm 2, as he did back in chapter 1. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this is the coronation and installation speech act of God. To beget is the ordination adoption of Christ to be the official representative of God to the people. Though on first impression, this seems like a poor proof text. For Psalm 2 is about the ordination of Jesus as king. It's the wrong office. The topic at hand is Christ as priest, thus the citation that he is king seems off topic. It misses the point. But to clarify our confusion, the author now cites a complimentary psalm. You are a priest forever after Melchizedek. Here, Psalm 110 completes the logic of Psalm 2. For Psalm 110 is also about the Davidic king. It, too, is an enthronement psalm where the son of David is ordained by the will of God to an office within the covenant community. And yet Psalm 110 adds another hat that David's son shall wear. David's boy wears the kingly crown but he also dons the priestly turban. The king is also installed as a priest, even for a forever priest. And this oath of ordination happened in heaven before Jesus was even born of Mary. Thus the father exalted the son as priest before Jesus even became a man like us. Thus Christ is not some arrogant human 
who promoted himself to the seat of glory out of selfish ambition. But he is the humble servant who is constrained by God's will and was obedient to it. And now that Jesus carries, and note how Jesus carries out his priestly office. The author continues, he says, During his earthly ministry, he offered up tearful prayers and crying petitions. Now, this offering matches the priestly offering up of sacrifices. But before we get to the shedding of blood, the author focuses us on prayer, another key priestly duty. The priest had to harmonize the blood and smoke of the altar with his request to God. And these emotional supplications are part of Jesus identifying with us. First, to pray is him to put or is for to pray is to put yourself in a place of dependence. The one who prays feels their weakness, their lack of power, and so look to another for help. Secondly, Jesus' prayers were soaked in painful emotions. They were drenched in tears of anxiety and cries of agony. As you know, the crushing weight of our weakness often presses the tears out of us. It squeezes cries and shrieks out of us. Praying to the Holy Lord who is enthroned beyond his soundproof wall of righteousness leaves us sinners locked out and unheard. In desperation, all we can do is weep and scream loudly. Yet it's not volume or emotional drama that gets us heard. Instead, Christ was heard by his reverence. The godly uprightness of Jesus was what carried his prayer to God. Righteousness are the wings that fly prayers to heaven to be answered. The reason our prayer line is out of order is because we are sinners. As it says elsewhere, the prayer of a righteous person has great power, but God's ears are closed to the wayward and rebellious. Thus, where we are not heard, Jesus was heard by his righteous reverence. Moreover, the pristine piety of Jesus was matched by the target of his prayer. He cried out to him who was able to save him from death. He looked to the Father who has the power of resurrection. For clearly this saving from death does not mean to spare one from death. No, Jesus was dead as a doornail. Rather, it means to rescue one from the power of death and to grant new life. Saving from death is the might of resurrection. Thus, a reverent prayer looks to the power of the Father. It lauds him as being able to do the impossible. So Jesus entrusted his prayers completely to God's power. He relied not on his own ability, but rested in another to do it for him. So this reverence dependence arose particularly then out of the humanity of Jesus. As the text says next, although he was son... He, the son, he learned by suffering. 
As the Son, Jesus had all the infinite power of God at his fingertips. But as priest for us, he could not avail himself to such brawn, for rather he had to be schooled by suffering. Now this line, to learn by suffering, is actually a fairly widespread Greek proverb. It's actually a play on words on how humans learn significantly by hardship. Just as our muscles grow through the friction of lifting something, so obedience is required uh, by affliction and agony. The ease and comfort of a couch teach us little. But by traumatic experiences, we are trained towards maturity. So learning by misery expresses the full humanity of Jesus to be like us. Now, of course, the nature of Jesus' learning varies from ours a bit. We are schooled from a place of disobedience to more obedient habits. Jesus, though, did not start from a location of sin. Instead, learning as a human meant he had to experience and concretely perform the obedience to fulfill the priesthood. His righteousness as the, as the, as the Son had to be executed as a human priest on our behalf. This was the nature of his learning. Nevertheless, note what Jesus won by his tearful righteousness in the schoolhouse of hardship. He became qualified for his office as the Melchizedek priest, and he became the source of our eternal salvation. By his priestly uprightness and his tearful prayers, everlasting salvation flows to us. Every last jot and tittle of our salvation arrives to us through Jesus as our high priest. Your forgiveness, Jesus purchased. Your atonement, he supplied with blood. Reconciliation with God, Jesus made a reality. Purification, adoption, the seal of resurrection, these are all yours bubbling up from the fountain named Jesus Christ. You then gain an audience with God near his throne of grace because Jesus wept wept in death for you. Christ is the agent. He is the mediator that grants you an audience with God and an everlasting home in heaven with the Father. Particularly, your prayers break into heaven to be heard because of Christ. The righteousness of Jesus are the wings that your prayers fly upon. Why do we have the freedom to just talk to God in our prayers? Because we pray in the name of Jesus. Because our prayers rest upon his meritorious mediation on our behalf. Our bold freedom in prayer and in worship was not cheap, brothers and sisters, but it cost Jesus the incalculable price of his blood. Your privilege to draw near to God's throne, even with boldness, was paid for dearly by the agony of Christ's death. And this privileged access to the Father 
is free to all who believe and obey Jesus. And the sense of obedience here is not work salvation, but it means to trust in Christ and to follow his example by praying to him who saves from death. Yes, as we offer up tears and cries to God, just as Jesus did, and then resting in Jesus, then the Father hears your prayers and he answers them with an everlasting salvation. Therefore, let us never take for granted the privilege that we have in prayer and in worship for free access to God through Christ. Rather, may we always rejoice that our prayers are free because it cost Jesus his life. Our salvation is a gift because Jesus bought it for us with his blood. Your heavenly Father, then, always has time for you on his calendar because Jesus is your high priest. He died for you and you belong to him in life and in death and forevermore. Let's praise the Lord and may all glory be to him. Amen. Let's pray.